From WOUB News, you're listening to The Outlet, where campus meets community. I'm MC Tilton. And I'm Liam Niemeyer. Each week on The Outlet, we bring you stories from the Athens and Ohio University communities. This week, we'll explore a day in the life of a therapy dog on campus and how man's best friend survives the college grind. We'll sit down with Kim Fox, Associate Professor of Practice at American University in Cairo, as we talk about press freedom in Egypt and Donald Trump. But first, we'll kick off reporter Megan Fair's Community Do-It-Yourself series with a breakdown of the unique vibes Athens musicians bring to the homegrown music scene. Seeing T-Pain at Mamad, not DIY. Watching Honey, a band from Pittsburgh, perform in a living room, that's DIY music. Those stories and more are coming up on the outlet. Stay with us. Welcome back to the outlet. Non-males, including females and all other non-male identifiers, are starting to be known within the local punk do-it-yourself music community as pillars of the scene. Megan Farrell will be exploring the unique nature of the Athens do-it-yourself community throughout the semester. Today we start with the non-male folks who run most of the shows. Forty bodies crowd into a living room, all chatting excitedly. A tall young woman walks around the room with a cardboard box, asking people for donations. The people smashed into this cozy home, nicknamed Luigi's Thunderdome, are here to see live music. The tall young woman is asking for donations for the touring bands. They've traveled several hours to perform in an unsuspecting home in Athens, Ohio. This is what DIY music looks like. music, or do-it-yourself music as it stands for, is a certain subset of community of musicians and artists who don't want to rely on the mainstream way of distributing music. The closest you can get to a DIY community without sort of having an in is probably seeing bands perform at the Smiling Skull Saloon in Athens. People who are sick of rock star complexes and a limited access to the music industry decided that DIY, this community, was the best way to go about fixing that problem. DIY has been around since the 80s, uh, gave birth to grunge essentially in the 90s, and the thing is, it still exists today. In more cities than you expect, small towns, little villages, entire cities have DIY communities. They exist underneath of an overlying, overarching entertainment community. Here's what separates DIY from what we usually expect of music entertainment. Seeing T-Pain at Mamad, not DIY. Watching Honey, a band from Pittsburgh, perform in a living room, that's DIY music. This is what live music sounds like in a living room. think that a community that exists outside of society's norms and general values about entertainment would probably subvert gender norms as well. However, historically, with the exception of the Riot Girl movement in the 90s, there really has not been anything but men leading the DIY communities around the nation. Obviously, there are exceptions to this, but take for example Athens. 
In 2012, the Athens DIY community was a scene largely curated by men, the bands that were performing were almost entirely composed of men, and the people going to shows, while there were non-men going to shows, were mostly guys. Throughout this audio story, I'm going to refer to anyone who doesn't identify as a male as non-man. The reason I am doing this is because not everyone identifies as female. Certain people identify as non-binary, and if you don't know what that is, non-binary is an identity that rejects the gender binary. They're neither male nor female. This has nothing to do with biological sex. This has nothing to do with sex assigned at birth. This is gender identity, which is wholly decided by your mental feeling. Athens in 2016 is an example of what happens when DIY communities subvert norms. Pillars of the scene, Julia Libby and Bailey Kretz, as well as prominent musicians Madeline Turney and Wishbone, are non-men. This song is High and Lonesome by Wishbone. My name is Julia Livey. I'm a photojournalism major and a media minor. I always wanted to be in a band. Um, you know, just going to so many shows, you sort of like, you're always on the other side of it. You're always watching. You're not like up there in front of everyone. And like, um, in the beginning, I was like, not re- like, I didn't really want to do it. But then like, basically, I just had like, I decided to stay in Athens over spring break. So I had and like all my roommates were gone had an acoustic guitar and I was like just gonna do girls rock camp and like see what happens here's Libby performing solo as Julian It's only fitting that the first band Libby ever booked was Frankie Cosmos, the brainchild of Greta Klein, an act led by a woman. One day I was like looking at Frankie Cosmos' Facebook and I saw they needed a show in Athens. I literally just Facebook messaged them and I was like, hey, you should play here. And then I set up the show and that was the first show I ever booked. If you're like, if you're like in a scene where pretty much everything is run by men, it just, it can be kind of scary and intimidating to be like, to like you know like message people and be like hey I want to like do this show like and you're kind of afraid they'll see you as like oh this like little girl who like doesn't know what she's doing or something because you sort of don't know what you're doing and you're a new person but like you don't know if they're going to be open to you doing these kind of things like you don't know if they'll be friendly um what has improved is definitely non-men representation women running shit doing shit booking shows playing shows I'm Bailey Kretz and I'm an integrated media major Kretz is promotions director of ACRN Media and an active show promoter in the DIY scene. So I'm the promotional director at ACRN, and basically that means I need to organize events or different activities or things like that to raise awareness for the radio station. Uh, Usually that's through doing shows um, or music festivals or any kind of like music-related conference, anything like that. Shane Riley, former promotion instructor for ACRN Media, had set a decent standard for gender diversity in lineup. Kretz, however, plans to consciously take that diversity a step further. 
if if I have more time to prepare for a show, I'll definitely make efforts to like diversify the lineup. Um, and especially with Lobster Fest, which I'm booking, I'm really excited about uh, the diversity of genders and races and just all musical types and just everything. Kretz commented on the novelty of Athens' DIY scene. I think it's really awesome and probably not common to have this many non-males in the scene. Um, I know when I first got here, it was predominantly male. I don't think there were actually any non-males doing anything. So it that's been really exciting to see, and I, I like that maybe I can consider myself part of that shift. Um, and you see freshmen coming in now, and they realize that they can be a part of that, and it doesn't matter what their gender is. Libby and Kretz are going to graduate this spring. This leaves two large pairs of shoes to fill. Now that more non-men are coming to shows and feel safe getting involved, Kretz and Libby hope that non-men involvement in the scene continues to grow. For The Outlet, this is Megan Fair. Kim Fox has been an influential force in the podcasting community ever since she left WOUB. The past eight years, she has been teaching students in Egypt how to create audio stories while working around the government's restrictions on the press. WOUB's Liam Niemeyer sits down with her now. So uh, welcome back to The Outlet. Today on the show for our two-way, we have Kim Fox here from American University in Cairo. She has uh, a lot of experience in uh, podcasting, has uh, worked at many other uh, NPR stations, and uh, we're glad to have you on the show. Uh, Thank you, Kim. Thank you for having me, Liam. I was just uh, curious, um, from uh, your perspective and uh, work in Egypt, Nasuri, what has been the impact of the Arab Spring uh, ever since it happened in like 2010? I know it's been somewhat of uh, six years or around that ever since uh, the major protests and events have been happening. Yeah, about five years. Yeah. I mean, it depends on your perspective on the situation. Some people will say that it's been unsuccessful because most of the countries who are impacted by the Arab Spring have just had a lot of turmoil post-revolution, and things either have rolled back and may appear to be worse than they were from the start. Some people will say, we're so glad we made that effort, that we took that step, that we stood up for ourselves, that we called government to be accountable for the things that they do and how they impact the different cities and whatnot. So it's just been a real mixed bag. And if I sound somber, it's you know, it's a true feeling. You know, I was there in Egypt during the Arab Spring. And it's just really sad when you think about the number of, li- <clears throat> the number of lives that have been lost. You know, are, are those lives lost in vain? It's, so it's frustrating, yeah. What do you mean by a mixed bag? Could you go into a little bit of uh, detail on that? Again, it was just a lot of, you know, when people lose their lives, you know, what does that cause? And when I say mixed bags, again, some people feel they, they're just okay with where that government is at the time. I'd rather speak more specifically about Egypt than some of the other countries like Tunisia, uh, um, Libya, and things like that. But, but in Egypt, some people just want stability, you know, post-revolution. They want economic stability, and they feel like, you know, constantly calling the government on the carpet for things is not an improvement. It's not a way to seek improvement. Now's not the time to make them accountable for what they're doing. So some people are just like, "Eh, I think we should just chill out. 
whereas others are saying, you know, you are really pr stomping on press freedom. Uh, there are protest laws. There are laws against freedom of the press. So, you, you know, you just have different opinions. So that's kind of the mix. That is the mixed bag. Mm -hmm. I guess specifically with uh, freedom of the press, I did a little bit of research. And as of right now, there's 23 journalists that are imprisoned in Egypt, according to the Committee uh, uh, to Protect Journalists. Mm -hmm. And um, there's like various provisions in the Egyptian uh, constitution, such as Article uh, 71 in particular. It allows media censorship in times of war. So whatever, it's you can pretty vague. You can invoke that right almost almost any time. Yeah. How do you um, necessarily work with um, the students, um, the journalism students at your university, while I guess working with working with that those kind of provisions and uh, that kind of government censorship with the work that you and your students do? I mean, I think it would be akin to what I do for any student or any journalist who are going to be dealing with governments, that you definitely have to be cautious and watch where you're stepping. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do the hard work and, you know, ask the difficult questions, but it does mean you need to be careful. I mean, journalists are getting killed globally, and it's always surprising, like, wow, people want to kill you for the written word. And the, the, it's like, yes, if you're trying to tell the truth, if you're, you know, speaking for the voiceless, you could lose your life for something that seems like it's just a few words on a page. So in terms of teaching students, I'm trying to do journalistically foundational things and teach them all of these, the tenets of journalism, but obviously telling them to use their intuition, use common sense, be smart when you sense danger, there probably is danger, that kind of thing. So the journalistic lesson, lessons are the same. And I guess with uh, the recent presidential election, with um, there, there seems to be a lot of support for um, the presidential candidate Donald Trump, and um, some of his uh, policies have uh, been controversial in the sense that people say that he is supporting xenophobia with his um, one of his uh, policies, saying barring all Muslims from the country, and also like I, I guess more or less the the characterization of Muslims along with the extremist group ISIS. What, in Egypt, what's the perspective of, I guess, the presidential candidate Donald Trump? And why do you think there has been, I guess, this fear of the Muslims in America? I don't know that I have a direct response for that. I mean, Trump's reputation is what it is. Uh, I haven't been in Egypt for a couple of months. And in that time, I think Donald Trump, has his reputation has picked up steam or his public presence has increased. So I'm not really sure of what Egyptians are saying about him. I mean, I know what Americans are saying about him, you know, for sure. So it's really quite interesting. Obviously, people are not in favor of his comments. You know, the way he's sort of, he, the way he is singling out Muslims and making his, his, his statement. It just doesn't make sense, you know, to, to say all of these whatever demographic of people you want to reference, they're the cause of the problem and we're going to penalize them because. And it definitely overlooks, it probably overlooks the foundation on which his career was built. You know, I mean, people know that Mexicans have, you know, built his buildings and blah, blah, blah. You just can't single out a group of people and, and say they, they're, you know, collectively the source of the problem. I mean, that's just ridiculous. 
So it's really tough to watch this Trump campaign, you know, proceed and to see it gain momentum, you know, based on this on this premise, amongst other things. So it's very unfortunate. I really appreciate you talking to me. Again, that was uh, Kim Fox. She's a associate professor of practice at American University of Cairo. Again, uh, this is the outlet and uh, stay with us. Thank you. Adjusting to roommates is often a difficult aspect of college life for incoming freshmen, but one OU freshman and her roommate have taken their friendship to the next level with the addition of a special guest in their room. WOUB's Mallory Golsky reports. Lucy Lippert enjoys chilling out in her dorm room, helping out her friends, and going to class. Lucy's very, very smart. It amazes me how smart she is. That's coming from her best friend, Sarah. It's no surprise the two girls get along so well. Both are extremely intelligent and room together in the honors dorm on campus, Johnson Hall. But Lucy and Sarah aren't exactly typical roommates. That's because Lucy is a two-year-old half-corgi, half-sharpay mix. She's Sarah's psychiatric service dog and helps her manage flashbacks that happen because of her post-traumatic stress disorder. Sarah was prescribed a therapy animal by a psychiatrist, but paying more than $20,000 for a trained dog was out of the question. So Sarah decided to train one herself. She rescued Lucy from the Painted Acres Animal Shelter in Zaleski and began training her, teaching Lucy to look for certain visual cues that indicate she's about to have a flashback. Lucy will then nudge, lick, and bother Sarah to let her know she's about to experience a flashback. This allows Sarah to get out of a potentially dangerous situation. Then, Lucy will engage in deep pressure therapy by sitting on Sarah's lap. The warmth and pressure help bring Sarah back into reality. As well as that, she does um, grounding techniques. She basically will, like, just kind of, like, make me pet her or, like, lick my hands and stuff. Um, And a lot of those are semi-natural behaviors, but they just had to be trained into the situation. So that the task training was not that difficult. People don't typically think of teams like Lucy and Sarah when they consider disabilities that would require a service animal. Assistant Dean for Student Accessibility, Carrie Bush, says oftentimes there are some misconceptions. I mean, I think most people think of probably people who are blind who have a service animal that helps them navigate. Um, But there are even students who might have a trained psychiatric service animal that um, is trained to respond to certain triggers that an individual has and maybe interrupt um, problematic behaviors. According to the Americans with Disabilities Act, service animals are allowed to go wherever the public is normally allowed and are in some ways viewed as medical equipment in the eyes of the law. Lucy accompanies Sarah to class, to her dorm, and anywhere else she may go. Service animals are not required to wear any sort of identification, such as a special vest or harness, but Sarah puts Lucy in a vest so she doesn't have to explain Lucy's job to business owners who may think she is just a pet. But it's not just making people aware Lucy is a service dog that can be a challenge. People's natural friendliness toward dogs can be a problem, too. One thing someone with a service dog has to think about at all times is that if I let a stranger pet my dog without asking, they're going to go on to do that to someone else's dog, and that can be life-threatening for other people. In fact, in the state of Ohio, it's against the law to distract a service animal while it is working. According to Sarah, the best way to act around a service dog is to ignore it and let it do its job. Although that may be difficult for students who aren't used to seeing a dog underneath a desk in class, 
For Sarah, having Lucy with her is just a part of her day. As long as people aren't, like, all focused on her, she's like, all right, let's just sit under the seat and, like, watch, watch me so that I can be productive and I can um, function like a normal human being. After all, even though Lucy is just a dog, she should be treated like any other member of the Bobcat family. For The Outlet, I'm Mallory Golsky. With the new year comes new resolutions, which for college students mainly revolve around academics. The outlet's Grace Warner gives us an update on how January promises have pushed on to February commitments. In the heart of Ohio University's campus, students are rushing in and out of Baker University Center, headed to and from class. It's been just over a month since the semester began, and for some students, academic goals and New Year's resolutions go hand in hand. I think they're nice. It's always good to have a little goal for yourself, especially if you write them down. It's a constant reminder of like where you want to be in the next year and kind of working on yourself. And um, it's a constant reminder, I guess, of like things you can do to better yourself. Some top goals for students getting their grades up and managing their time better. Well, my m- most important goal is maintaining my GPA. I did really well my first semester. I got a 4.0, so I want to try to do that again. Don't want it to just be like a fluke or anything. And then resolutions, just try and study ahead of time. My semester goals would be to make the dean's list and just to get better grades overall in all of my classes. And to have better time management skills and help keep my GPA up. Probably to just stay focused more, procrastinate less, get everything done when I need to get it done. But making the goal and keeping the goal are two different things, something Skylar Morris knows all too well. It's hard, you know, you get into it and you're like, yeah, you're all motivated, but you realize how hard your goals actually are. But students can turn to the Allen Student Advising Center and Baker University Center for help. Angela Lash is one of the academic advisors in the center. She says it's important to have a strategic plan when it comes to achieving your goals. They also sometimes don't Um, know exactly what they need to earn in order to get the GP to get to where they want their GPA to be. So my advice there is to have measurable goals related to their GPA and we help students here do that often. Once your goals are set then time management is important and many students have a hard time with time management throughout the day as well. Claire Hanna is a sophomore studying visual communications. She says she easily gets distracted throughout the day. Staying on top of things, I get distracted very easily by people watching Netflix, obviously. Um, I just need to like keep the mindset to like work hard on my studies and to like keep striving towards my goal. Whether it's with time management on a test or in your daily life, Lash has tips for both. I think it's important to look at your schedule and set goals and times for when you think you will study and try to make a routine that you stick to, to think of school and as co- of college as your full-time job. Lash says many students don't take advantage of enough resources around campus. Talking to their professors, um, I've, I talk to lots of students who are intimidated to do that and they're not sure what to talk to their professor about or why they would go into the class, but I think it's perfectly okay to go in at the beginning of the term and just say, hey, I really want to know who you are. You're the instructor of this class. I want to do really well. What do you think I should be doing to be successful? 
But no matter what resources students choose to use, the most important thing to keep in mind, it is never too late to start. For The Outlet, I'm Grace Warner. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for joining us. The Outlet is produced and hosted each week by me, MC Tilton, and my co-host, Liam Niemeyer. We're edited by Tish Baidia, Susan Tebbin, and Allison Hunter. Adam Rich is our technical assistant, and our theme music is produced by Ryan Gavis. Subscribe to The Outlet on iTunes or follow us online at web.org. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Athens and Ohio University communities. Thanks for listening.